Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary audio series about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they've come to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 29, Utopia, and the teacher who made a game of its impossibility. We'll get going in just a moment. Life is chaos, disorder, imperfection, disharmony. And yet we cannot resist the temptation to imagine a perfect world, if only one could exist, and to ponder how we might attain it. We call this utopia. It's a term plucked from the writings of Sir Thomas More, an Englishman who lived in the late 15th and the early 16th century. He was a statesman, a lawyer, a philosopher, but today we know him best for a literary work of his called Utopia, which is a satirical account told by a fictional character to Moore himself of visiting a perfect island society. A place called Utopia. A place that, of course, was flawed in myriad ways, was doomed to failure and frankly much less perfect than our enthusiastic traveller would have you believe, all for reasons left to you, the reader, to identify. It was hardly the first time that somebody had imagined or even satirised an ideal society, but it captured the imagination in such a way that we named the concept after this fictional place. Utopia, a word meaning nowhere or no place, thus now also means the perfect place. And it has occupied the minds of game designers just as completely over the five decades we've had this digital medium as it had architects, writers, philosophers, painters and poets for millennia before that. But not necessarily for the same reasons. For you see, game designers, in the same vein, it seems as Sir Thomas More, tend to think in systems, not ideals. They look at the interaction of these systems and examine how the world works. They play with systems, and they create models and simulations with them, so that we may play with them too. Thus emerged Utopia, the video game, an early 1982 release from Mattel's Intellivision home video game console. It was a bestseller, but more importantly, it was a critical darling that proved so influential that it would foreshadow the creation of two, maybe three, major genres, as well as one of the most influential games of all time. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so before I tell you about Utopia's legacy, I want to share the story of its creation. And in order to do that, I need to lay out some background context. So let's go back to the mid-1960s, probably around 1964, 17, 18 years before Utopia's release. There's this kid, Don Daglo. He's the one who would go on to make Utopia. But at this point, he's in sixth grade. He's been hearing for as long as he can remember, from his anthropologist-turned-accountant father, that one day computers are going to change the world. And now his teacher has taken him and a couple of his classmates on a field trip to San Francisco to see some computers up close. This is at the time when computers are room-sized monstrosities operated in freezing cold conditions, and when they mainly used punch cards for input, which literally that means like cards with holes cut into them. 
And the operators of one such computer decided to show Don and his classmates a quirk in the design of the system that caused it to emit various electromagnetic frequencies as it operates. Frequencies that could, in turn, be picked up by a portable radio to play a sound. Here's Don. And normally, of course, that was just kind of this little cacophony of random tones. But some, some smart character in, that, in their team somewhere, or somewhere where it had been shared, had created a deck that would play a song. And so they put that deck in the card reader playing the song, and I don't remember what it was, but we all thought that that was really, really cool. The music in the background just now was not my interpretation, by the way, but rather an actual recording of one such song that some computer history museum restorers made about a decade ago. And so with an experience like that to think back on, you can probably understand why this next moment went down the way it did. Flash forward to 1971. Don's finished high school and he's in his second year of a liberal arts degree at Pomona College in Southern California, which, as it happens, had just received a grant from the Sloan Foundation to put two computer terminals in a dormitory accessible by all students. So one day uh, in 1971, when I'm telling the story, I always go, you know, some things you remember in infinite detail, and I remember this day in great detail because it was such a, a change in my life at that moment. But I was walking down the hallway of the dormitory just after I walked in, and I hear this clickety-click-click, clack-clack-clickety-click sound. And I'm thinking, what the heck is that? And it's coming from this little room with the open door. And this is the dorm I lived in. Just pure luck that that's where the terminal got put. You know, so many of these things, luck plays such a huge role. And I walked in, and here were these two terminals, and there was a student. And I said, wow, what's this? And and uh, she explained what was going on, and she said, would you like to, to uh, try playing a game on the computer? And so I sat down at the keyboard, and I, th- I think the first one I, the, the, she brought up was a, a horse racing game where you picked a number between one and eight, and then, then you hit return, and then you didn't do anything. It just said, okay, a quarter of the way... Number three is ahead, then number two, then number eight. You would just give the order. And so, of course, it was a one through eight random number guessing game, a 1D8. But it had a narrative. It told a story. And so after I tried a couple of, oh, and then she said, oh, well, would you like to have a conversation with a psychologist? And she brought up Eliza. And I played with Eliza, and I went, oh, dear. Ah, oh, oh, this is so cool, because I was a playwriting major. I thought that my, you know, my grand dream was to be, you know, uh, change American theatrical literature as a playwright. You know, all the great dreams you have as a college kid. And I knew that the odds of that were one one in 10 million, but it was still kind of my dream. And I was willing to work hard and I thought, what the heck, I'm a good writer. I'll, you know, see what happens. He realized that these games he was playing were like interactive theater. He could write that. And so he did. Don learned how to write code in BASIC, which at the time was the standard language for getting into computer programming, and he started to make programs. And he continued making programs, all through the three remaining years of his undergraduate studies as well as his two years of grad school. Mostly he made games, 
like a Star Trek game that cast you as captain of the Enterprise and printed out a TV-style script as you made your decisions. But there were all sorts of games, some of which I'll cover in more detail in a future episode, and a few of which gained a fair degree of notoriety. But let's keep the story going. I was training as a teacher because I knew that playwrights and writers starved. And so I was trained to be a teacher, which I enjoyed doing. And so that meant for until I got my master's for almost two more years, I got to keep my computer access. And three days after I got my master's degree, they hired me as an instructor in the teacher training program in the Department of Education. And I, I, I taught there for four years, which gave me four more years of access on the computer system. So I had nine years in which I could be writing on a mainframe. So basically most of the 70s, I had mainframe access. Most people who had the same passion as me and were doing what I did, if they got a couple of years access, that was great. And I got nine years. And that's just nothing but pure luck, right place at the right time. That wouldn't be the end of Don's luck either. There's a story he likes to tell for this next bit. So I'll just set the scene again. It's 1980. Don has a wife and a baby and a mortgage, and he's working three teaching jobs to pay the bills. And he's unhappy. He specialised in something called multicultural education, but he'd moved up into an administrative role in the school district. And they weren't being very multicultural with their thinking. And so he was struggling to navigate what he remembers as a very political internal culture that ran increasingly counter to his own beliefs. I was, li- I was driving along one day in my car, just at the point where this was just coming to a head, that this was going to become a pretty hostile place with this new uh, set of people who'd been voted in. And an ad comes on the radio, and a voice on the radio says, would you like to work in the exciting world of video games? Which now is, you know, this very new thing. And I'm driving along and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know how to do this. I know how to design games. Would you like to help shape the future of this exciting new form of entertainment? And and it's kind of, yeah, yeah, I would. And the, the joke, which I admit I've told 50 times over the years, I was driving a convertible. And it's half true that I thought about, okay, is this the radio talking to me or is it God? Because I needed a job at this moment. It was talking about exactly what, you know, this many people in the world had experience doing and I had experience doing. So they said, so the voice says, if so, call, call Mattel Toys at 213-978-JOBS. That's 213-978-JOBS. And so... uh got an interview. They were looking for computer science majors. But once they heard I'd been designing computer games for nine years, it was kind of like, oh, okay, no, this is going to, yeah. And they gave me an offer. And so I went to work for Mattel Toy. And I didn't know at the time, but my first day was day one of the in-house and television team. I'll continue with the story right after I read this message from my sponsor. Did you play games in the 1980s? Do you own a Mac? Retro Games for Mac is a collection of 20 different titles inspired by some of the greatest hits of the past. The selection comprises a mix of arcade games, puzzle games, casual games, all upgraded with modern graphics and sound, a consistent user interface, 
and even hidden cheat codes to discover. And they're pretty fun, I've seen them. The series was created by Richard Bannister, and it owes much to the games he played 35 years ago on his Amstrad CPC 6128. Individual titles cost just $1.99 from the Mac App Store, and 10 game packs are available for $9.99. To learn more, listen to my Indie Spotlight interview with Richard, or visit retrogamesformac.com. That's retrogamesformac.com. Alright, let's get back to the show. When we left off, Don Deglo had just explained how he'd left a career in education to work on video games for Mattel, who'd been happy to have him once they'd found out he'd spent nine years making games on a mainframe computer as a hobby. And unbeknownst to him, his first day at the office just so happened to also be day one for Mattel's in-house Intellivision team. Before that, the Intellivision had been handled by a group of outside consultants who wrote games for their test market in Fresno, California. The testing had gone well, so Mattel was set to launch Intellivision nationally, and Don was one of five people hired in the in-house application software team that kicked off work in December of 1980. Their job was to come up with games to sell for the Intellivision. And not just any games, but all the games. Because there were no third-party developers or publishers just yet. So I was initially assigned to the keyboard component. If you read about Intellivision, you read about master component that rested inside the keyboard component. Both had been test marketed in Fresno. The keyboard component had problems with its cassette tape. It was tr- it was really ahead of its time in many ways. It was a wonderful device. But for cost purposes, they couldn't use a floppy disk. They had to use a cassette. They had problems with it. They were having trouble resolving within the budget they'd been given and the price point the machine had to be at. So it did not come out of test marketing immediately. It was still in test market when, when I got there. And so... They wanted more educator, educational titles. Oh, wait, Don, you're, you know, you've been a, uh, you, you know, you've got a, a, a teaching credential, which is what American teachers have to have to teach. And you've taught in the classroom. You taught adult school. You taught grad school. You know, let's have you do an educational game for the keyboard. And uh, so I jumped right in on that. I was thinking, okay, well, I should pitch something that is a very mainstream class that all parents took when they were in school because, or a subject that everybody had to learn when they were in school, because that's something parents will recognize, you know, that's not a peripheral title that will feel like it's core. Uh, Something that won't take too long to do, do a traditional quiz game, because that's what was seen as what computers could do back then. He decided to make a geography game that quizzed players on the 50 states of America. Management approved, so off he went. Programming in BASIC, that same language he'd learnt all those years ago when he first started using mainframes. BASIC itself was sold as a product with the computer so people could program their own games. And so these were also supposed to be demo games showing the power of BASIC. So I worked on that program for about three months to get through in in the process. I had to learn all the vagaries of the machine, how to use the cassette drive, all these things, get oriented to the company and all the sign-offs I had to do in the planning and so on. I learned that process. 
So finished that game. It went into the test market with the computer. Computer never, never came out of the test market. And a quick sidebar here, that Intellivision keyboard component was the subject of a class action lawsuit and Federal Trade Commission fines, because it had been promised, but never eventuated. And so to protect themselves from further litigation and fines, Mattel rushed out a much cheaper, simpler version called the Entertainment Computer System. It had six games released for it. And meanwhile, Don's Geography Challenge game became a rare collector's item. A copy recently sold on eBay for $969.69. So that was my first title. So I wrapped that up and they said, okay, Intellivision is really a hit. We're going to put all hands just on video game cartridges. We're going to have you do a cartridge. So tell us what you want to do. And, you know, this same process, you have to get sign off you know, fit the market, use common marketing sense, et cetera. And so, again, I taught social studies at middle school. And I said, well, do you want educational entertainment? No, we want entertainment. If it appears to have educational value, that's a nice plus. Because we're sell this machine, a lot of the selling is for education, not just entertainment. But no, this isn't going to be, this is going to be a game-branded title, not an education-branded title. Okay, fine. He took some time to think about it, and soon a project from his past came into his mind. In 1976 or so, I had done a game where I taught the kids very often, this was a socioeconomically impacted area, a lot of the kids had not seen much of the world. It could be a very dangerous streets um, around this area. And so how do you teach the world to to, to kids, if most of their life they've been restricted to 16 square blocks, they could go out once in a while outside that family outside of that, but a lot of their lives was 16 square blocks. And so I struggled with it. And then one day I was in the school cafeteria, I looked down and of course they have these linoleum squares and the school cafeteria, it's common in the U.S. to have fold up tables in school cafeterias. So they fold them down by day The tables are there, there are attached benches, and you get seating for a lot of people. And then the the custodians come in at night, they lift them up into the walls, they flatten into the walls. It creates a big open space, which can be used for other kinds of events, but it also means the custodians can just clean the floor. In a children's cafeteria, you want to clean the floor. So I looked at that and I thought, oh, ho, ho, you show, If you show a game designer any space that has tiles marked off on it, game designers know what to do with this. And so, uh, you know, we were already playing D&D. I'd already written Dungeon at this point. And so I got three rolls of black electrical tape that afternoon, took a map of the world, you know, hatched it off. And I used the black electrical tape to turn the cafeteria into a map of the world. And I decided to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. I didn't ask the, my principal, who's the head of school, the headmaster first. Came in the next day and I was kind of figuring, well, I'm either going to get told to pull it all up and be a good boy. And instead, the principal said, oh, what, what's... And I kind of went, you know, I showed up knowing there'd be a question. 
I said, oh, I did that. I'm doing, I'm, I'm using it for educational games to teach the kids the concept of how big the world is and oceans and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. Two days later, the principal had called the local newspaper and there was an article showing the kids playing on the floor of this game. Don wondered if he could do something new with that idea, with the Intellivision. And then he remembered a text-based game, a home computer game, with minimal graphics that he'd played a few years earlier, called Santa Paravia and Fiamaccio. It was a twist on an older mainframe game called Hammurabi, which itself was a recreation of a 1968 PDP-8 mini-computer program called the Sumo Game. It was a text-only simulation wherein you attempt to grow the economy of the ancient city-state, Sumer, by buying and selling land, planting seeds, and feeding, or not feeding, your people, taking care not to be ruined by the plague or rebellion against your terrible leadership. Santa Paravia took that game and added taxes, military, and social classes, as well as several types of public works buildings like mills and markets and cathedrals that you could construct. And at the end of each turn, it would draw a map of your fledgling kingdom. So Don wanted to combine this idea with his old cafeteria floor map of the world. But he needed to constrain the design in some way. Because with a palette of 16 available colours and a resolution of just 159 by 96 pixels, the Intellivision lacked the visual fidelity to do anything complex or large scale. And so I thought, oh, I can't do anything very refined. And I remembered a game I had done on the mainframe, uh, Killer Shrews. And you had islands, because an island. Islands solve problems because you bound your world. If you have to do something small as a game designer, how do you bound the world? Well, islands bound the world. And I just, I, doing Killer Shrews, it was great. I didn't have to worry about anything. Why I didn't have to have fences, borders, mountains. The island was into itself. So I took the island from the Killer Shrews. I took the idea of a graphical top-down view of the world from my school game. And I took the tradition of simulation games, which if you look back at the history of games in the 70s on universities a lot of simulations and specifically the commercial success of uh, Santa Paravia um, as a game you know by today's standards it didn't sell very much but back then it sold enough to get noticed and so I, I made that the pitch for Utopia and I said this is this is how it worked and management approved it marketing approved it Don needed to learn assembly language in order to execute on his vision for Utopia So a programmer called John Soule was assigned to teach Don assembly in between sessions where he'd work on his own game, the soon-to-be best-selling space shooter Astro Smash. And then after several months of work, in November 1981, Utopia was done and ready for the many stages of manufacturing, through creation of test ROMs for testing on production machines and then shipping off to Hong Kong for mass production, in a process that would take not days or weeks, but months in total. Utopia came out in April of 1982, or sometime thereabouts, it might have been as late as June, to a glowing reception and strong sales, which by then wasn't much of a surprise to anyone, but only because of the events that had transpired a few months earlier. 
at the 1982 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. So we go, here's the Mattel booth, all the different new games being shown and so on at the booth. And we're working the booth and doing demos for the press and for retailers and so on. And so after the, the night of the first day of the show, or the next morning uh, after the first day of the show, I call my wife, hey, honey, I'm getting ready to go over to the show floor. I wanted to call, tell you I love you. You know, how you doing? You know, how, how's, how's our little boy? You know, we had a two-year-old. Actually, it's about one and a half at that point. And she said, well, we're doing fine. But I opened up the newspaper this morning and the Los Angeles Times and uh, Utopia is on the front page of the entertainment section. The headline read, Video Game Makers Offering New Twists. And the first seven paragraphs of the article were all about Utopia. And I said, what? And she read me the headline and everything. For whatever reason, when the press tours had been done and so on, Utopia was a line filler. For, for, as viewed by the company, we had our big sports games. We were doing, we were filling out that line. We were desperately trying to catch up with Atari already on things that felt like coin-op arcade games. John Soule's Astronaut Smash, great example. But they still wanted a broad line, and so that's why they'd approved Utopia when I pitched it. And one of the reasons they did it was we have a lot of sports games, we have a lot of arcade games, give us something other than that. And so Utopia as a strategy game that had a guerrilla educational purpose because, you know, it taught about these, these values of how, how does all these values interplay, you know, what makes a society work, you know, things that you teach in social studies. So um, for whatever reason with the press, Utopia was seen as, and, you know, with the historical record, we see why. It was seen as the big breakthrough game for Mattel and for, in some cases, for any video game design for the show. And I'm just floored by this because this is what, January of 82, 13 months before that, I'm a teacher and school administrator trying to figure out how I escape a hyper-politicized environment and still writing games on my mainframe's a hobby, never having made a penny off of it. 13 months later, my game is all over the newspapers like this. And it was just kind of like, ah! Utopia's real impact was not its combination of educational qualities with commercial appeal. Although it certainly did sell well enough to make a good point about the potential for strategy-focused video games to reach a broad audience. I think its real impact was in its design. Here was a game about such abstract ideas as a perfect society and the interplay of natural and economic forces. It was a two-player game, with two islands in the middle of an ocean. Each player had to grow their island nation by building out infrastructure, like farms and factories, houses and hospitals, as well as by growing and catching enough food to feed their people, lest they rebel against you. And of course, that means you needed to also have a strong enough military to stamp out rebellion or defend off pirates. And if you were so inclined to invade your neighbor's island. And as if all the strategy involved in handling all those elements, as if balancing money, happiness, power, food and pollution wasn't hard enough, there was also a full-blown weather system that Don had painstakingly, over days and weeks, 
crafted to throw in droughts and floods, fish migration patterns, hurricanes and more. All to ensure that any harmonious, utopian states of being would be fleeting at best. The thing that I think of when, when I look at Utopia is the Thomas More book, Utopia. Uh, was that in your mind as you were making it? It was not specifically. In those days, we did not take ourselves anywhere near as seriously as game designers are capable of taking ourselves now. And the systems were so primitive, you know, we weren't going that, oh, I'm creating interactive literature here, yes. You know, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look upon my work, ye mighty. You know, that kind of ambition didn't exist at that point. But at the same time, you know, you came from those traditions and still was something you felt. So the idea of a utopia as the subject of a game felt very apropos in that way. But no, uh, Sir Thomas More specifically, no. And uh, one of the things I find really, really interesting about the game is that it seems like it's kind of predicated upon entropy. Like this idea that true utopia is impossible. Uh, you, you can maybe reach it briefly, but then you'll get You'll, you'll lose that balance and it'll always be fleeting utopias because the systems that underpin our society, they lean towards chaos. Uh, what, to, to what extent was this something that you were uh, intending and planning for? I definitely planned it that way and I'll give you two sides of that coin. Side number one is it's a game. In a game, you have to have challenges. If you can reach nirvana and the machine goes off and goes, ding, 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 ding. You've achieved nirvana, game over. Well, that's nice. And once you figure out that pattern, you'll no longer play the game. So the idea of it being the pursuit of perfection, but perfection is impossible, is inherent to good game design. You know, you have speed runners. There's, you know, we could, we could have a great discussion about exceptions and outliers to prove the rule. But as a principle of game design, we want to have challenge and we want to have challenge that keeps you coming back. The other element is I had learned very clearly as a school administrator and school teacher about the imperfections in life and that you, you're not going to just sweep aside all the problems in the world and create even a miniature shining star. You know, you're not going to be able to do that. And so it's also realistic in that it's a matter of Maneuver the pieces, but people need to have jobs. Okay, you need factories. Oh, but that's going to produce more pollution, which is going to create health problems. Well, would uh, well, let's have a hospital that'll help counter some of the health problems, and you can plant. So let's create all of these interactions and these checks and balances. So instead of okay, I bought, I I built three farms, five schools, and I'm done. Thank you, thank you very much. So there's always something else that's creating a problem. And then, of course, there are the rebels, which are both a feedback mechanism. But, of course, in the 70s, we had all these things of different places in the world where one country was spending money to help rebels in, an, in, in, in another country. And then going, oh, we don't, have any, we don't know anything about it. You're an evil, evil government, and the oppressed people you oppress need help, but we don't know anything about those rebels. So that was, it was both a feedback mechanism if you got your own rebels from the AI, and it was a, 
<laughs> torn from the pages of the newspaper to uh, to do that. So that's where that part came from. But yeah, uh, so both from game pur- purposes and also, yeah, the view of the world I'd acquired in the tiny little bit of administration working for a governmental entity in my little tiny minuscule corner of the world. I felt like it was both good game design and realistic. It was also critical both for Utopia's commercial success and its ultimate influence on the industry, that the game be more than a digital board game. It had to come alive. Immediacy meets strategy, thinking meets action. In Utopia, we can see the beginnings of new genres. It wouldn't be the only antecedent for real-time strategy, or city-building games, or god games, or even despite its label as a Civilization 0.5 for that genre of Sid Meier's Civilization-style, empire-building, turn-based strategy games. But they're all there, each of them, incomplete, partially formed ideas within an idea, waiting for the technology to mature enough that someone else could come along pluck them out and make them whole. Uh, What do you think of as the legacy of Utopia? I think the intentional legacy is God games, you know, Civ games, all those. That kind of thing was, I I think I mentioned, was a, a tradition in the 70s. In text games, doing something like that where you took some, you took some aspect of life and you did a simulation of it in text. And the idea of taking that to graphics and the idea of making the board come alive, a game board come alive instead of a static board, um, that was all very intentional. So that is very direct. The real-time strategy part of it, and, and you know, people put it in different ways in between, you know, clearly it had a turn-based mode and it had a real-time strategy mode, but mode both. The real-time strategy mode was intended to keep you from being bored when you finished your turn and to to give you things to compete for your time with your turn to create pressure and a sense of priority. Well, I could tweak, you know, I can fool with this stuff and think about this and play with that. But I I want to go fish. I got to, I you know. And so it was all of that. So that's where the real-time strategy piece came from. Compared to a Dune 2 or something like that, which existed to be a real-time strategy game. Clearly, it was different. So, But it was the idea of saying a traditional board game is not enough. On a computer, you need more, and we need to give you more to do, and we need to create a competition for your time. It's the same issue as you were saying about no utopia. In board games, if there's no clock, you can take all the time you want. But games are more... Chess champions... You have your chess clock. And so the real-time strategy elements were to give you something that was new, that was not just a board game. And in that respect, uh, I think they're foundational to real-time strategy. But you can never forget it's both a turn-based and a real-time strategy game. It's not only a real-time strategy game. For me, these genre influences are sort of a secondary concern. I think the legacy of Utopia really boils down to that one idea. Utopia. That one irresistible, ever-repeatable notion of a video game that gives you the tools to design your own utopia, and watch it fall apart again and again. Or of a video game that gives you a utopia, 
and dares you not to let it break. Or indeed, of dystopia, and all that it might be. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, with support from my wonderful patrons, and a special thanks, as always, to producer-level supporters Robbie Bahart, Kerry Clanton, Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, Seth Robinson, and Wade Trigaskis. You can join this six and 22 others, yes, it's growing, it's wonderful, to help make this show sustainable, to, to, to gain access to bonus content and research notes, to get rid of the cross-promotions, the ads and intermissions, and to shape the future of the show by heading to patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. I often ask patrons for help deciding on upcoming episode topics, while the money I earn from the show pays for equipment upgrades, like my new MIDI keyboard, and for more time for me to interview developers and craft compelling narratives. So your voice and contributions really do make a difference. That's patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. If you don't want to make a monthly commitment or you can't, you can send me one-off donations via paypal.me slash or various other methods that uh, you can reach out over email richard at lifeandtimes.games if you want to know about them. I'll have links to all of this and a few things mentioned in the episode in the show notes, which you can always find at my website, lifeandtimes.games. And before I go, a reminder, this show grows by word of mouth. And the more listeners I have, the more I can find ways to create more content and, most importantly, better content. So if you like it, please share it. Tell a friend, post it on social media, or on a forum or a social news site like Reddit or Hacker News. Got some good traction on Hacker News with Transport Tycoon. Every little thing helps. Until next time, please remember, wear a mask, do your social distancing. In this time of a global pandemic, it's a scary world at the moment. So... Take care of yourselves and each other, and stay well. My name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thank you for listening. I'll see you.